rescued by him. They experience God at work in their life. And those first sort of uh, how long it might be, months, years, there's an outward-facing look in their lives of discovery of who God is, growth in personal life, sense of belonging and service. It's very outward-oriented. And then inevitably what happens is that life catches up to us in other ways and there's a crisis, there's a curveball that's thrown. They described it as hitting the wall. Maybe you're face-to-face with God or a face-to-face with yourself. Or or maybe life throws you a curveball that um, it's it's caught you off guard. And they say usually in that situation, if you're a person of faith, one of three things happens. You either do a loop back and you keep doing the same things you were doing beforehand um, hoping that you'll get a different result. And, and, and in fact, what happens is you end up sweeping those things under the carpet. The second thing that can happen in your life is that you jettison God at this stage because you say, God doesn't fit anymore into my reality. I can't see him working in this situation. So you jettison God. And then the person says, actually, what's the real um, good work of, of hitting the wall in that moment, even if it's very painful and it is for many people, is that you realize that maybe God's calling me deeper in this moment in my life. And so what I need to do is go on an inward journey, one that requires a different set of skills that I didn't have before, but they're important, but a different set of skills. And what emerges on the other side, if you're prepared to take that journey with God, is that you discover him in deeper and fresh ways. And what results of that is is that you become more self-aware, you become more integrated, in your faith and your life, you become more empathetic to the world around about you. And, and you realize that the world is really complex. And so you can learn to hold ambiguity in a different way. And so you, you love from a different place. And so I wonder in this series that we're doing, an open hand to God and an open hand to others, is one of the things that God might be calling you to do is to give yourself permission to address the wall. And, and not just flick back, and maybe you hear who's someone who's jettisoned faith, but you're still sort of hanging on with your fingertips. In fact, what God might be inviting you to do is actually go deeper, and that requires some hard work and sometimes painful work, but you, do it alone. you don't do it alone, you do it with others. And so if there was a word for today that I'd want to say, share to you, if you're listening online, is permission. One of the things that I think that, that prevents us from opening our hands to God is that we've actually said, I don't give you permission or it's too hard. And so I'm going to invite you today as we work through this section in the book of John's account of Jesus to give God permission. And so let's dive in together. It starts off and it says this in, in chapter 1, number 19. It says, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Um, now, don't get confused with the Johns here. This, John writes this, but he's talking about now Jesus' cousin John, who's been baptizing people, preparing people. And there's word that's got down to the city, the main power um, uh, city of, uh, in Israel, where all the religious festivities are, where the temple is situated. And so they've sent up leaders from the Levites and the priests, to inquire about this person who's baptizing people, dunking them underwater in the Jordan River. And so they come to John the Baptist with the simple question, who are you? And he outrightly says, I'm not the Messiah. Um, The Israelites had been longing for someone who would come and rescue them uh, from the powers of Rome. They looked to a time in which God would establish his kingdom, his life here on earth. And from the the books of their scriptures, they'd been counting 
uh, there'd been some prophetic words offered, particularly in the book of Daniel, that said this, there would be a time, and so they were counting, and, and John says, no, I'm not that one. And so then they, they rifle through, if you like, their traditions, and they say, well, are you Elijah? Because there's a tradition that's in the book of Malachi that says, you know, before God's day of restoration comes where he expels wickedness and evil from the world, um, he will send Elijah. And, and John says, no, I'm not a, that Elijah figure. And so they say, you, uh, they dig deeper into their traditions. And they say, well, are you the prophet? Because Moses talked about a prophet like him coming. And he says, no, 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 I'm not the prophet either. <laughs> so they kind of say, well, then who are you? <laughs> um, and, and he does this. He says, I'm a voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And what he's doing here in this moment, like a singer-songwriter who wants to appropriate someone else's line from a tune and they acknowledge it, he kind of delves back into the tunes of Israel and he pulls out this particular line and he sings it for himself. He says, I'm, I'm that one. I'm the, the one the voice calling out in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, which is not him saying, I was the one that Isaiah was talking about who had come uh, in his context, but I'm one just like that. And so he takes the song and he sings it and they kind of hear that tune. And, and they understand that what he's trying to say to them is that actually I'm the one who's preparing a way for someone else and God's going to act powerfully through him. At the time in which he'd shared this, this line in its context of the day um, that, was, that was recorded hundreds of years before was, was a message of hope to, to the Israelites who'd been managed up into the north, they'd been sent to the naughty corner for, for doing uh, misbehaving and not shining God's light into the world. And, and so Isaiah comes with a message and says, your time's up, you, you're now called back out of the naughty corner and God's going to send you back home and he's going to make a way for you. So it's a message that's actually filled with hope. And so within that particular vein... Um, it, John the Baptist says, I just want you to know that who I am is pointing to someone else. And the interesting thing with John is that you couldn't have just arrived at that him pointing to someone else bigger than him unless he'd already done some work with God beforehand, which essentially asked the question, who's my boss? <laughs> at some stage in John's life, he would have asked that question and, and concluded that, God, you're my boss. Therefore, I will do what you want me to do. So he had a really clear sense of purpose. And he said, the person that I'm pointing to, I, I'm not even... I'm not even good enough or great enough to untie the, the, the shoelaces from his sandals. But, but I, want to, I want you to know that I'm pointing to him. And I suspect that anyone here in the room, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you've had to actually have to wrestle yourself with, who's my boss in the world? And, and, and you've concluded that actually, God, I want you to be my boss. And, and therefore, part of you instinctively knows that Life is kind of about you, but it's actually more so about him. And so there's something within you that, that calls out a bit like John and says, I want to point to someone else who's actually leading me and guiding me in my life. And so then as John's recording these words, that's the, the writer of the book, he wants to explain what are the two things are that, that Jesus will do when he arrives. And so he picks up the text in 29 and it says this, the next day John, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and he points at him in front of everyone and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If there's one thing that I am more acutely aware of in my own life, the more time I spend with Jesus, is that what's true of me is, is this phrase, I am a sinner. <laughs> what does that mean? It means that there's something inside of me that wants to call the shots. Some people call it human nature. The Bible just kind of defines it as sin. And it doesn't mean that you're a terrorist. What it means is that there's part of you in your life that says, I want to rule myself, I want to please myself, I want to serve myself. Thank you very much, God. And that ripples through in every single one of us. In fact, it's at the cause and the heart of actually so many of the world's problems that we see around. Jesus said, it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean, it's what comes out of you. And then he lists these things like greed, evil, um, anger, hatred, violence. In fact, uh, I pulled out this picture this week, and this is Gaza. And I, we might look at this and shake our hands and rattle our fists and say, how could this be? But from a, from a biblical perspective, this has got sin stamped all over it. It's when one human being says, I don't like you, I, I want to take your life and I'm going to bomb you. And then another one says, well, I'm going to repay you like for like. And it just goes on and so evil begets evil. Um, suffering begets suffering. Violence begets violence. And, and the way in which the kind of the biblical story narrates that is to say, actually, there's a problem that's deeper. And before it's an act, it's a power. And so within that, then, Jesus, his words are profound because John points to him. He says, the one thing that this person, Jesus, is going to do, he, he's going to in some way be a sacrifice that's going to take away the sin, not just for you, but of the world. He's going to address that fundamental problem in human nature. The problem, another problem when I talk like that is that some of you instinctively think, oh, well, God hates me. And that's not true. You see, I think God would whisper, you are of infinite worth, but in need of repair. So when Troy says he's a sinner, he's not saying that's everything about him. But that's something that's running through him that needs to be addressed. And Jesus is going to do that in bucket loads. In fact, the more time I spend with Jesus, it's like the story where someone said, how do you tell someone that they're bent out of shape like a stick that's out of shape? He said, well, one way you can do that is you can point at it and you can say, oh, look at you, you stick, you bent out of shape stick. Look at that thing. You've got knots and you've got gnarls and you've got scars. Look at them. Look at them. Or he said, you can just get a straight one and put it up alongside it. <laughs> and then you can do the sideways thing. And I find myself doing that with Jesus is that when I draw close to him, there's times in which I think, yeah, there's some things about him that I'm, I can reflect and there's other things that I don't. And I need him to help me, his goodness and his life through me. And John says profoundly then, one of the things that Jesus will do is that he's going he's gonna to deal with the problem of sin in the world, the wanting to call the shots. And then the second thing he says he's going to do, he's going to baptize you with a new power source. In 33, it says, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that's the person he's pointing to is Jesus. I've talked to people about 
uh, the time in which they came to faith and the, the instant response. Or over a period of time, it may not have been a profound, big effect, but it took place in their heart and they began to change. I heard someone say, say to me that when I first came to know Jesus, what happened it, it was a changed heart inside of me. My shopping habits changed. I said, what do you mean your shopping habits changed? He said, well, you know, when you used to line up at the, and you used to butt into the queues, he said, I became far more aware of other people around me, so I would just let them in. I said, what, you just let people in the queue? He said, I just let people in. Well, I, if I was the one who was standing behind you, I'd get awfully frustrated at you. But they said, the changes in my life that were happening, I began to soften towards other people. I heard someone else describe that when God's Spirit took up residence in their life, they, they said, I began... To look at street people differently. I used to catch the train to go to work. And as I walked to my workplace, there would be people who were camping out on the street. Said I had all these kind of judgmental things about them. But when God took residence in my life, his spirit began to change me and a narrative changed in me. And I began to wonder when I walked past them, I wonder what's brought you to this place. He would occasionally stop and say, is there some food that you need I can go and buy for you right now? And often they're the most profound changes that happens in someone's life. And, and John the Baptist is aware that there's two things that Jesus is going to do that humanity needs more than anything else. There needs to be a time in your life where actually Jesus deals and washes clean and eradicates and says, the slate's clean, you can come home to God. But also that what you need is, if you like, a new engine dropped in your, into your chassis. <laughs> A new engine that pumps and beats to the tune of God's heart. They're the two things that Jesus is going to do. And then John shifts in his discussion and he gets more personal. And he, he tells then stories about Jesus now interacting with people. And they're two sets of brothers. And this is the first one. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. And there's two disciples, and then and John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God. And so they, they hear this, and they instinctively then follow Jesus. And they must be making a little bit of an eyesore, because Jesus identifies this, and he turns around and he says to them, what do you want? And I'm not entirely sure that in that moment they knew what they wanted. They just were following him because John had said, look, he's the Lamb of God. And so they walked. And I think they may have stumbled and gone, well, I, I don't know. I, I, uh, can, can we go to your house? <laughs> and he says, okay. He says, why don't you just come, come and see? And, and they do. They hang out with Jesus for the whole day. It says four o'clock. And then a penny must have dropped because one of them by the name of Andrew, he goes to his brother, Simon, and he says to him, I think we've found the one we've been looking for, the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? The first thing Andrew does when he discovers this person in his own life, the penny must have dropped. He goes to his brother and he says, why don't you come and see as well? Well, he brings his brother, Simon, and Jesus looks at him and says, I'm going to rename you Peter, which means Kephas, which means you're going to be a rock. I wonder if you had an Andrew in your life who introduced you to Jesus. 
I wonder if you're here this morning because you had someone like Andrew who reached out to you and said, come and see. And they just invited you on a journey of interaction and discussion. If you would like to be in one of those interactions and discussions and come and see, I'm holding one on a Monday night. There's some young guys in their 20s who kind of want to go deeper and want to ask some real genuine questions about God, life, and spirituality. And we're going to be hanging out over the next month and a half. If you want to join us, and you've got someone who you can do a come and see with, then, then let me know. But the curious thing is straight after this, there's another one. We suspect it might have been the other disciple of John the Baptist. Because it says, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And, he, and before he does, he goes hunting for Philip. And he finds Philip, after Philip's had his come and see kind of moment, he asks him this question, or it's really an invitation. Philip, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And then Philip's confronted with this challenging idea that maybe you've been seeing Jesus, you've been circling around him. But there's a moment in which Jesus might look at him and might look at you and say, okay, you've had enough exploring of me and you're welcome to continue to do so. But I've got a far more serious question and invitation for you. And it's as though Jesus opens his hand and says, follow me. Someone who has come to follow Jesus has responded to the open invitation and an extended hand of Jesus to follow. And they're in the routine and habit of waking up each morning and seeing that hand again and the invitation once again. And will you follow me today? And will you follow me today? And will you follow me today? <laughs> and, and so the curious thing that we find is that then Philip runs and finds his brother, Nathaniel. And he goes, gets Nathaniel, and he says, Hey, I think I've discovered someone who's the one we've been looking for. And, and he's the son of Joseph, and he's from Nazareth. And cynically, Nathaniel answers, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You can kind of drop your own town or city in there that you want to do the comparison. Can anything good come out of... And so Nathaniel the cynic is brought to Jesus by... By Philip. And it says, When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, He is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He's an upstanding Israelite. And Nathanael says to him, How do you know me? And this is the moment where it gets spooky for Nathanael. Because Jesus replies and he says this, Well, to be honest, I've just seen you now. But I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathaniel has this spooky moment where he's like, okay now, I was under a fig tree. We don't know what he was doing. Was he reading some scriptures? Was he praying? What was he doing? But he all of a sudden realized he's confronted with someone who's not just your everyday ordinary human being. He's the kind of everyday ordinary human being who actually sees everything about him and knows him in a different, deeper way. He saw him under the tree. And so all of a sudden, Nathaniel replies and he says, You are God's son. 
You are the king of Israel. And Jesus replies to him and says this. Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? I tell you this, Nathaniel, you are going to see far greater things than these. You've only just started. The story's only just begun. But if you would follow me, you're going to go on a journey with me that you mightn't fully understand. But if you open your hand to me, I want you to know that I've already opened my hand to you. And then Jesus goes on and he, he pulls out this other little tune that's kind of in narrative form. He says, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a curious little trope there. But it's been taken and ripped off from another poem and another song from another scripture in which there was a young man by the name of Jacob and he was running away from his brother Esau. And as he was running away from his brother Esau, he had a dream one night. And during the middle of that dream, he saw a ladder going up to heaven and angels coming up and coming down. And God spoke to him in that dream and said, I am with you and I will prosper you. I need you to know that. And so he wakes up, Jacob does, and he goes, surely God is in this place. And he calls it the house of God, Bethel. And what I think Jesus is trying to say to Nathaniel in this instant, in this moment, is you are going to see like that moment, the house of God ascending and descending in me. It'll be like I am that link between heaven and earth. And God's fullness is going to be in me. And you watch and you see. But first, and I think this is intuitive within the the story that's not quite laid out. There's a hand that's extended to Nathaniel, an invitation to follow. To follow. When we were first thinking about this theme, open hands to God. It was on the back of last year's theme. And the theme from last year was quietly loud. Sometimes Jesus' followers have been loud when they should be quiet and quiet when they should be loud. And we need to reorient that. Because they're trying to learn a new language and occupy a different territory for Jesus. And so building on from that, what we wrestled with and sought God over was, what kind of image would you have us for this year ahead? And as we prayed and as we sought, a story popped into my head about a man who told me about an exchange in business with a Middle Eastern person. And he said, this Middle Eastern person I do business with, when we're not getting anywhere, he has this idiom and he he says this, why don't you open your hand to me? Why don't you open your hand to me and do business? Why don't you open your hand to me and let's talk? Because in his estimation, this man has had his hand closed to him. Won't do business. Won't interact. Won't talk. (laughs) I chuckled when I heard that. Because I wonder if that's often the thing that that prevents me from going deeper with God is because... There's something in me at times that actually is like that idiom that I have my hands closed to God. And I wonder 
if one of the first things he wanted to convey to people he met was that you don't understand my father. He has his arms open for you. I don't come to judge you. I come to wash you clean, to pour a new spirit into your life. If you would but just open your hand to me. So I want to say to you this morning, if, if you're exploring God and you're in the come and see, I need you to know that I think there's a word that he would say to you. Jesus would say, would you open your hand to me? And you realize that you're the one that needs to give him permission to do that. To open your hand. But more so, I think... The bigger one for many in this room is that as you begin a new year with God and his invitation to you is to open your hand to him, is that what he's inviting you to do is to walk a new path with him, maybe face some of those walls and to go deeper with him and to give yourself permission to go on a journey with Jesus that has not been like what you've done before. Because we are creatures of habit. How do I know that? I observed you when you came and sat under the tree. If you came for week one, you sat on the left. And then you came for week two, you sat on the left. And when you came for week three, you sat on the left pretty much in the same place. Am I right? How many of you here are sitting approximately in the same seats you've been sitting in for months, maybe years now? You too, mate. And I wonder if he might be asking you, would you reposture yourself this year with me? And that might be in opening your hands in worship, opening your hands in the morning in prayer, opening your hands as you catch the train as you go to school. But would you open your hands to me? Give yourself permission to change things up with God so that you might experience and encounter him in different ways. If you'd like to do that, we're going to sing a song right now. I'm going to pray for you. And if you would like to say to God, I give you permission, then why don't you join me as I pray right now? Father God, here in this place right now, I ask and pray that you would hear the permission giving from people right now as they open their hands. And would you take them on a journey that goes deeper? that maybe takes risks, that maybe postures themselves in different ways, that maybe begins with you in the morning and that you might lead them as we give permission to know what it is to open our hands to you and therefore open our hands to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand?